If you're taking notes today, uh, this message is called Because We Love. Because We Love. We're going to be looking at two primary passages of Scripture today, and that is 1 John chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Those are the two places that we'll spend the most time in. 1 John was a letter um, written by the Apostle John, um, not to be confused with the Gospel of John, although that is the same author, uh, John wrote the Gospel of John as well, and he was a part of Jesus's inner circle. We'll call it the inner circle, and that was made up of Peter, James, and John, which, of course, were members of the 12 disciples. John is famously known for his, um, his phrasing about himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, which is always a funny, a funny thing whenever an author is talking about themselves in that way. Moses does the same thing similarly. He says that he was, Moses was the meekest man of all, um, but taking his word for it, I guess. But I do love John um, because he seems to have a great understanding of his identity in Christ. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's one of my favorite authors in the scripture. He comes from this perspective of understanding how loved and how cherished he is by Jesus and by the Father. In this particular uh, letter, um, 1 John, it would appear as though, I think there's a, there's a lot of evidence that historians would, would agree that this letter was written, in, at least in part, to combat a popular heresy during the time, heresy being a, a false teaching, a wrong teaching that was circulating in Christian, in Christian circles called Gnosticism. How many of you guys have heard of Gnosticism before? Cool. So Gnosticism, a few things that distinguish it from uh, Orthodox Christianity would be um, one that... The belief is that the, uh, the spirit, the spiritual is wholly good and the physical is wholly evil, okay? The spiritual is wholly good and the physical is wholly evil. That salvation is not actually attained through faith in Christ, but through special knowledge that can be attained. And that Jesus, although he appeared to be a real, live human, that he only seemed to be and wasn't truly. In the midst of that belief... Um, in believing that the physical realm is wholly evil, um, the, the Gnostics, as they were called, Gnosticism was, was kind of known for being very immoral because, I mean, after all, the, the physical realm is a bunch of garbage anyway, so why don't we just do what we want kind of thing. And uh, John takes some time in 1 John to tackle each of these subjects. And in the passage we'll, reading, we'll read, you'll kind of feel some of the tones of that, uh, starting in chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. I'm going to say that one again. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Not in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. 
Next, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians was one of possibly four letters that Paul wrote uh, to the church at Corinth, but we know two of them well, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians um, kind of has a little bit of, of a gracious tone in reflecting on what Paul would call a more severe letter that he had written before. So 2 Corinthians, he's, he's celebrating that they responded well to his more severe letter. And um, in, in this particular letter, and in this passage, he is encouraging the church of Corinth in chapters 8 and chapter 9. He's encouraging the church of Corinth to prepare a generous gift for the poor believers in Jerusalem. And so we'll find him starting in verse 1 in chapter 8. Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, sharper than any two-edged sword, even splitting between soul and spirit. We thank you that your word, as it is spoken, it becomes the rhema and is the sword of the spirit. Lord, we pray that your truth would be planted deep inside of our hearts today and that we would be transformed by it. God, speak and let us have hearts and ears that are open to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I have young adults come up to me. Uh, I'm a young adult, but I'm a married young adult, so I should say single young adults. I have single young adults come up to me and and they ask me questions like, um, how did you know Micaiah was the one. Or, or what, what distinguished her and made her so special? It distinguished her from every other lady that you've met? And, um, you know, they're, they're, of course, asking this question because they want to know what to look for and how they can know uh, when they've met the one, as it were. Um, and I don't blame them. I, I had similar questions and feelings. I remember, I think, asking my parents, being like, tell me, how am I going to figure this out? How am I going to know when it's the right, the right one? Well, I've been married for five years now. And I'll tell you this. Um, I don't actually buy into the idea of the one. Um, and, and, and a big part of that is because I actually believe that marital love is, is a lot more about being the right person than about finding the right person. You might have heard that phrase before. I didn't make it up, but it's a really good one. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, there's this pressure that we put on young adults. 
this pressure of just finding that one perfect, immaculate, fulfill every desire you've ever had spouse. And I think it's incredibly unhealthy. Incredibly unhealthy for teaching people what true love actually is and how to have an enduring marriage. Because the love that we actually see in the scriptures, the love that God loves us with and tells us to love him and others with, um, it, it's, it's quite a bit different from this concept of falling in love. You know, I, I'm not like totally against that phrase. I'm not like coming down and being like, don't say that. But I do think it's not really accurate. And I do think it's not, it's not super helpful. I think it's, it's a misdefining of, of words, of terms. Because the love that God has called us to, the love that we are to abide in, is not something that you fall into or fall out of. That's, that's not the love that scripture talks about. The love that we are to abide in is actually a decisive love, not a compulsive one. There's a difference. The love that we're called to abide in is a decisive love, not a compulsive one. And so it leads me back to this question that people ask me, you know, how did you know? Well, to be honest, I, I, didn't, I didn't really know. Um, that's part of it. You know, you, you want to be led by the Spirit. You want to be led by counsel and, you know, ask the people who have gone ahead of you to, to speak into it. But at the end of the day, when you're at that altar and you're saying, I do, you're doing it in faith. You really are. Because you don't know. I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm five years in and, and I still don't know. And I didn't know. You know what I mean? Like, there's the, you, you can prepare for marriage, but you cannot be ready for it. You know? There's a, there's a leap of faith always. Always. But it's a beautiful leap. It says, my commitment is going to last longer than my feelings. It is in the not knowing that the promise means so much. If you knew, the promise would not be as weighty. It's an act of faith. But how did I know I wanted to marry my wife? Well, I knew I wanted to marry her because I found that my desire for her was not primarily driven by my attraction to her or by my overwhelming emotion toward her. Those, these things were very present, I can tell you. <laughs> very present. No, my, my, my desire for her was driven by this something in me that, that wanted to give and to, and to serve and to sacrifice. I wanted to help. You know, I, I found myself like doing things that I'd never wanted to do before. Like I wanted to help her mom with yard work. <laughs> I had never felt that way about a girl before. <laughs> hey, you know what? I wanna help your mom with her yard work. You know what? I want to take you and your little sister to work at 3.30 a.m. in the morning out deep into Wolf Lodge exit. I want to find, I want to, I want to spend as much money as I can to get you things that I know you want but you'll never ask for. I found myself scheming and going and, and, and wanting to find out her deepest dreams and desires and, and scheme about how I could make those come to fruition or at least help make them come to fruition. 
I, I, I can't describe it perfectly, but I'll tell you this. There was something inside of me. When I met Micaiah, there was something inside of me that wanted to hurt. Or at least be willing to experience hurt on her behalf. And that was new. I actually began to value her well-being more than my own. And that was new. It's interesting to me the difference in connotation or, or cultural understanding. The difference in connotation between love, that word, love, and generosity. I mean, how different is the picture in your head? And for me, it's very different. You know, I'm just going to picture love for a minute. Okay, I picture love. There's a hug, maybe a kiss. There's some, some little hearts that are floating, and they kind of like, they're different shades of red, and they, as they float up, they begin to disappear. And I also picture really nasty tum candy that's, that's heart-flavored. That, so that's my, okay, picture love. All right, now I'll picture generosity. Okay, I picture this person in really nice clothing, but they rolled up their sleeves to show that they're willing to get dirty in order to be generous. And they're giving like lunch or a bunch of money or physical goods to, to someone who's apparently in need. And I'm not saying either of those pictures are like super wrong because they can both, I mean, they exist. They're real. I mean, except the floating hearts thing. I, you know, I don't, that doesn't really happen. Um, but there's definitely a difference of connotation. But the thing is, the scriptures, the, the, the love that the scripture talks about, and specifically in these two passages, every time the word love is mentioned in these two passages, it is a specific kind of love. It is the same Greek word every time. Different tenses and forms, but the same Greek word. And this, this love is very different from the way that we use our English word, love. Very different. It's this word agape which I'm sure a lot of you have heard if you've been in church for a while. Um, we use that term sometimes. And, and if you're not familiar with agape, agape is the highest love. Agape is the love that God has toward us. And like I said before, the love he calls us to have toward him and toward others. But what is agape if it's not the same way that we use the word love most of the time in our language? Well, I came across this video uh, that offers a illustrated history of the word agape this week, and I thought it would be helpful to our understanding. So if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rahmah. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. 
But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like, love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. That's a pretty cool video, huh? Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, what sticks out to me, others-focused, self-giving love. Others-focused, self-giving love. The early uses of the word agape, uh, even outside of the church or the, the believing world, um, would imply something that we would read as uh, preference. That is, to prefer, 
the object of your love, to prefer their needs and their wants and their well-being over that of your own. The plural form of agape, which I think is like agapaus or something like that. I, I don't know how to say it right. But the plural form of agape, I, I found this to be super interesting. The plural form would, would be translated for us as the term love feast. Love feast. And a love feast was something, has anyone ever heard of a love, the love feast from the scriptures? So love feast was a time when the, the wealthy believers would, would host and, and prepare the food and purchase the food and have the food ready, and they would celebrate with the poorer believers. They would invite them to come and enjoy. But it wouldn't just be like this act of charity. It, it was almost like we're inviting you, and tonight we're all on the same playing field. Tonight... We're all going to enjoy this as equals because of the mutual love, the mutual agape that we share. We use this term a lot, or this phrase a lot here, uh, especially when we're talking about finances. Uh, you probably know it. We give because we love. Yeah, we give because we love. If you've been around here at all, you, you've heard us say that. Uh, we actually take that from prob- probably the, the most famous Scripture in the whole Bible, I would say, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In that scripture, it's for God so agapesin the world that he gave. Agapesin is one of the tenses of agape. In verse 35 of the same passage, same chapter, it says, the father agapa, the son, and has given all things into his hand. I find it super interesting, and I, I, I don't think this could possibly be a coincidence. I'm not a big believer in coincidences, but in 1 John 3.16, so the famous one is John 3.16, right? 1 John 3.16, which happens to be the version verse of the day today, 1 John 3.16, which is the letter, not the gospel, but same author that we just read earlier, it says, by this we know agapen, another tense of agape, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, which is, of course, a reflection on the words of Jesus from the gospel of John in chapter 15 where Jesus says, Greater agapen has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The verb there, to lay down, in the Greek is tithemi. And and by itself, it means to place or lay or set. But when it's paired with this other word that we see in both those passages, for, F-O-R, in the Greek is hyper. When you have tithemi and hyper together, it gives us a sense of, Giving. See, written into the very fiber of agape is the generous heart of God. These scriptures show us that for God and for God's people to participate in agape is 
to give. And the greatest, deepest form of agape, Jesus said, was to give one's own life. Others focused, self-giving love. The word love, um, some of you, uh, are you guys on Instagram? Yes, okay. Um, The word love was the most hashtagged word. Familiar with hashtags? Number sign, word, creates a link, attaches it to all the other occurrences of that thing. It was the most hashtagged word of 2018, and right now, love on Instagram sits at about 1.7 billion uses, a little over that. 1.7 billion times it was hashtagged. 1.7 billion different photos or images or videos in which love was hashtagged. I, I bring that up because this idea of love is something that humans are pretty much universally attracted to. In fact, for many, love is actually the closest thing to God that some will ever worship. Love is the closest thing to God that some will ever worship. Which is a really interesting thing because without an understanding of the love of God, love is kind of this nebulous thing that we don't really know what it is. But in all our searching, in all our seeking, our pursuit of this grand idea of love, I'm afraid that the word has uh, lost its meaning. Even in our dictionaries, not just in culture. Love defined an intense feeling of deep affection, a deep romantic or sexual attraction to someone, a great interest and pleasure in something. I'm gonna highlight some key words from those definitions. Feeling, affection, romantic, sexual, attraction, interest, and pleasure. Now, would you join me in comparing these words with what we just read from 1 John chapter three? By this we know agapen, Now, I use that word instead of the English word there because my submission to you is that it is a different word. It is a very different word than our English use. By this we know agapen, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's agape Abide in him. Little children, let us not agapomen in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So how how is it done? How can we love in deed and in truth? How can we live out the generous heart of agape? if what culture says is love is not that. I think Paul gives us a pretty good example in the other passage that we read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He starts by telling of the the Corinthians, the church of Corinth, about the generosity of another church in Macedonia. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... 
and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul is uh, apparently, obviously, using the church of Macedonia as an example that the, the church of Corinth should aspire to. And in this first section, it almost looks like he delivered this strange formula, which was abundance of joy plus extreme poverty leads to or resulted in wealth of generosity, which makes no sense. How does joy plus extreme poverty equal wealth of generosity? Well, it doesn't make any sense to this kingdom. But I think the lesson of this kingdom is that to not have a lot is not a good excuse to not be generous. To not have a lot is not a good excuse to not be generous. You see, a generous person doesn't become generous whenever there's enough. That's, that's not how it works. I mean, that's often, I think, how we think. We look at somebody who's generous and we're like, well, you know, they got to that place where they had an abundance and now they can. No, the generous person lives with the understanding that for the generous person, there is always enough. And for the greedy or stingy person, there is never enough. So my question then for you, for me, for all of us is, do you live with the mindset, the state of mind, the state of heart of enough? Because that's what it is. It's not a dollar figure. As much as the government would tell us that there's this magic number that you get to and then that's when you're, no, false. Do you live with the mindset of enough or are you waiting for enough to fall into your lap? And then you will become a generous person. Because if you are waiting, I fear that you may be waiting a long time. In fact, I, I fear that you will be waiting until it is too late. The person who waits for enough to come will never find it. Paul goes on to say that they gave according to their means and beyond their means by their own choice, begging for the privilege of being a relief to the saints. Then he says that they gave themselves first to God and then to the people. How do we live out agape? How do we live out agape? We beg, this is a, this is a rewiring. We beg for the opportunity to give instead of waiting for someone to beg us to give. If you only give when you are begged, you have missed agape. To live this out, we must come into this place where we beg for the opportunity to give rather than waiting to be begged to give. To, to live out this agape is to put on generous lenses. It is to take initiative, to literally pray that God would reveal moments of generosity in your past. That is to say, 
To live out agape, we must prepare to be generous. We must plan for it. But in order to even do that, we must first submit our hearts at the feet of Jesus, our hearts, our plans, our calendars, and even our wallets, so that we might even step into this spirit-led generosity. So I have some more questions. Two-part. Does your budget allow for you to give your first fruits to God? Paul says they gave themselves first to God. And does your budget allow for you to be generous toward people? I'll say it again. Does your budget, the way you spend your money on a monthly basis, whatever, however you, weekly, yearly, whatever, does it allow for you to bring your first fruits to God? And does it allow for you to be generous toward people? See, now you might be feeling like, ooh, Seth, you're being kind of arm twisty and rude about that. Well, let's look at Paul's words because he doesn't really hold any punches. It's actually, he, he, he kind of ups the ante. He doubles down. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove, to prove by the earnestness of others that your agapes also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He essentially tells them, well, do you love them? Put your money where your mouth is. That's what Jesus did for us. Um, Paul obviously gets away with more than I can get away with this morning. I get that. He's Paul. But if Paul were here in the flesh, let me ask you this. If you were here in the flesh and he asked you for your bank statement, print it out for him, as he's looking through it, would he come to the conclusion that your love is genuine? What would Paul say about the genuineness of your love? I don't say that to condemn you or to judge you because that question first is for me. And I'll just tell you, some months I do better than others. But I can tell you this, I believe that if God saw my bank statement, he would challenge me to be more generous than what it says today. Now he does shift his tone a little bit in chapter nine and helps the Corinthians understand the promise that comes through loving genuinely by giving generously. I'm gonna say that again. The promise that comes through loving genuinely by giving generously. He says in chapter nine, starting in verse 10, he says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's good news. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. That is to say, as you live generously, what Paul is saying is that as you live generously, God will empower you to be more generous. And that the results of that generosity will not only be that needs are met, but that it will produce thanksgiving in their hearts as their needs are met. When we live generously, 
it reveals the heart of God to people and they thank him. That is to say, your gift becomes their thanksgiving, their praise, their worship to God, and rightly so, because he is the giver. We are simply stewards of his others-focused, self-giving love. Stewards of his agape. Like Robert Morris, Morris says in the final chapter of his book that we've been talking about, Beyond Blessed, God is a giver, and you're never more like your heavenly father than when you give. <laughs>